Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and has ever wondered about them. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and its sequels, and the Top Secret Diary of Celie Valentine series. And I'm Eve Yohalem, and I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue, which is out this week, and Cast yay! Off. Yay! Oh my gosh! Yeah, yay! yay. <laughs> yes, yay! <laughs> and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we explore a book-related musing, something we've wondered about for a long time, or maybe it's just very recently struck us. It doesn't matter, as long as it's fascinating. And I have to say, this episode is... I love this episode. <laughs> I, I do. I love this episode. Yeah. <laughs> I love all our episodes. And it we don't feels- even care. We yeah. don't even care if the listeners like it. We love it so much. Exactly. Okay, exactly. we care. I mean, yeah, we care. <laughs> we want you to love it. In any case, in this episode, we tackle what it's like to edit an iconic author. And we knew we wanted to look into this. You know, what is it like to edit people? You know, how do you tell Toni Morrison she needs to rework a sentence? <laughs> and, and so we knew we wanted to look into it. And our problem was... How do we do that? I mean, editors don't self-promote. You don't see a lot of, you know, YouTube videos where editors talk about telling Toni Morrison how to change a sentence. And they're not likely to be fully candid about what goes on behind the scenes because it's private. It's like airing dirty laundry. Right. So I remembered this incredible book that I had sitting on my bookshelves. Like many books, I regret to say I I bought it and hadn't yet read it, but I I did have it. It's called Dear Genius, The Letters of Ursula Nordstrom, who's a famous children's book editor. And I opened it up to a random page and I found the following letter. It's a letter written to the author of Harold and the Purple Crayon, which is a very famous children's book that I read to my kids. Did you read it to your kids? Oh my God. Yes. In fact, it's Nick's favorite children's book. Not that he's one of my children. He's my husband, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's a wonderful, iconic children's book. And the letter begins, the dummy of Harold and the Purple Crayon came this morning and I've just read it. I don't know what to say about it. It doesn't seem to be a good children's book to me, but I'm often wrong. And this post children's book week Monday finds me dead in the head. I'd probably pass up Tom Sawyer today. Let me keep the dummy a few days, will you? She clearly gave it a few days and changed her mind, right? She did change her mind. But can you imagine? Like, Harold and the Purple Crayon almost didn't get published, at least by her. Yeah, yeah. It's just such a strange thing. Also, the author of Harold and the Purple Crayon is named... Crockett Johnson. We discuss <laughs> the book a little later on, and I refer to him wrongly as Crotchet Johnson, and Eve will never let me live that down. In fairness, Julie, I mean, <laughs> that's just never going to grow old. That is going to be hilarious forever. <laughs> okay. Anyway, the point is, I realized that there exists a collection of letters written by an editor of iconic authors, and we can't interview her. Ursula Nordstrom died in 1998, but we could interview the person who collected and edited the letters, Leonard Marcus. 
Yes, and Leonard is phenomenal. He has written more than 25 books himself, including many about children's book writers and illustrators. He reviews children's books for the New York Times. I mean, he just has a staggering number of accomplishments, and you should check him out and his accomplishments out at leonardmarcus.com. So he was working on another project, and he kept hearing from all of the people that he was interviewing that Ursula had written wonderful letters. He found carbon copies of many tens of thousands of letters at her publisher, and he called them for this really remarkable book. So it turns out we went into this thinking about what it's like to edit iconic authors, but we're also hearing about an iconic editor. We have two meanings of of iconic editing today. Right. Ursula Nordstrom was remarkable. She was director of Harper's Children's Division from 1940 until 1973. And here's just a small list of some of the books (laughs) she edited. Things like Goodnight Moon, The Runaway Bunny, Charlotte's Web, Stuart Little, Where the Wild Things Are, The Giving Tree, Harriet the Spy, Freaky Friday. Can we just say, I mean, that is unbelievable. Yeah. Everything from Goodnight Moon to Freaky Friday, yeah. this woman edited. And more, and Incredible. more. Yeah. If you can name a children's book from that era that lives on today, chances are very high that Ursula Nordstrom was its editor. So we started by asking Leonard how Ursula found her geniuses. Here's what he said. Well, she was a deeply curious person. In those days when her career began, um, publishing was smaller in scale. Um, It was typical for artists to come by a publisher's office, sometimes unannounced, with a portfolio. There were very few agents in those days. So um, submissions were through the transom, and she was open to everything. She prided herself on answering her own phone, because as she liked to joke, that could be the next Mark Twain calling. She generally welcomed anybody who came in off the elevator, sat them down, and gave them what you might call the talking cure, where she would spend maybe half an hour or an hour if she felt interested in the person. And what she was really doing was trying to figure out what that person, what story that person had to tell. And if she felt there was something there, then she would take the next step. There's an incredible story about in the book about Jean Craighead George. This is from an interview. She says, Pat, who was the department business manager, led me along a winding course to Ursula Nordstrom's office deep inside the busy labyrinth. She was bent over her desk in concentration, her gray hair grooved where her fingers had pressed. Hearing us, she turned around and her penetrating eyes met mine head on. She nodded to say she knew who I was and why I was there. I guess someone had arranged the meeting. I want to write a book, I said, about an Eskimo girl who was lost on the Arctic tundra. She survives by communicating with a pack of wolves in their own language. Will it be accurate? Yes. I'll write you up your contract in advance now. Who is your agent? Never before had I been offered a contract in advance before a word had been written. I went home and began writing Julie of the Wolves. Mm, which is the book for which she won the Newbery Medal. Right. Yeah. It's just incredible. Yeah. No, wait no publishing committee. <laughs> just. Right. I can't wait for that to happen to me. <laughs> well, that's one of the main ways that publishing was so different in those days. Strong individuals with a vision could often do what they wanted. And so her list in particular had an extraordinary um, consistency to it, as different as the individuals were who, you know, contributed to it. 
Okay, hang on. We just have to interrupt this interview for one second to explain how unfathomable this is. I mean, this This is is not not how it works. No, no, this is not how it works today. Today, you write a book, you have to have an agent, your agent submits your book to a bunch of editors. And then if the editor likes your book, the editor has to take it to a committee of people that usually includes the whole editorial department, the publisher, people from marketing, people from sales, and then collectively, they decide whether they're going to publish your book. So, wow. I mean, I'm just trying to imagine, you know, (laughs) taking the subway over to an editor's office, heading up the elevator, walking in, having a little chat, having her say, sure, publish your book. (laughs) Well, our podcast is called Book Dreams. Right. right. So there you go. Anyway. Let's keep the dream alive. Yeah, exactly. Back to the interview. One of the things that I thought was interesting was the picture you painted of how because children's books were considered lesser and, you know, and female, they were just sort of left to their own devices mm-hmm. to yeah. have whatever editorial point of view they wanted to have. So turning a vice into a virtue, I guess. That's right. To me, that was fascinating. And I, I think of this book as a contribution to women's history. And children's book publishing was one of the few areas in the book world where women could flourish in Ursula's time. And it was because of this uh, ambiguous situation that on the one hand, the owners of the companies felt there was value in publishing children's books, but at the same time, they had a certain contempt for the whole thing and therefore let the women they hired just do what they wanted. Yeah, it is remarkable to read a business book about Mm -hmm. a mid 20th century industry that's almost entirely about women. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, women in those days could become librarians, they could become teachers, they could become missionaries, they could become nurses, and they could work in children's book publishing. Thankfully. Yeah. I love, too, the story um, of how she pursues so often and just an idea that she's heard and she loved, mm-hmm. like with Ruth Krauss and A Hole is to Dig. There were a number of letters that she writes to Ruth where she says, what happened to that definitions book? Where are we with that definitions mm-hmm. book? Yeah. And it became finally a book that you know I read to my girls. Yeah, it was published in 1952. And it was not the very first picture book that Marie Sendak illustrated, but it was the breakthrough book for him, I would say. Do you want to know the story of how yes, the book was please. made? Ruth Krauss was hanging out at the Bank Street College of Education in Greenwich Village, where Margaret Weiss Brown had come into her own as a writer a few years earlier. Bankster was very proactive about helping writers and illustrators make picture books based on the progressive education understanding of young children, how they learn, how they grow, and how they respond to words and pictures. So Ruth Krauss invited Marie Sendak to hang out with her there. So he was then barely published. He was a real go-getter. He spent a lot of time in the school where they had a, a nursery school sketching the children. But then um, they had this idea for a book um, where the children would actually contribute the text. I mean, Ruth Krauss is credited as the author, but really she was soliciting definitions from the children in the, the nursery school. Oh, that is so charming. Yeah. I didn't then, know that. Yeah. Well, not too many people do. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, and she wrote them down on three by five index cards. And then she handed uh, Marie Sendek a pile and said, here, you decide which ones you want to illustrate. So they pieced the whole thing together that way. 
and it was very much in the spirit of progressive education and people like John Dewey, who were the like the founding figures in the field, because it created a situation in which the children could become collaborators. And it seems connected to to something about the vision that Nordstrom had, something about the way she thought about children's books connecting with children mm-hmm. that really was part of her genius in finding these books that became classics. Right. Can yeah. I mean, she, you know, she never went to college and she was one of the most well-read people you could ever find, but she was self-taught. She kept the Oxford Book of English Poetry with her at all times and seemed to know it inside out. And um, she was um, a maverick. One of my favorite stories about her early time Harper was that she went to a newsstand and bought some comic books to see what it was that so appealed to children about them. Because comic books in the 40s were just considered trash by, you know, the official arbiters like the librarians and a lot of educators and parents. But Ursula Nordstrom had the presence of mind to say, yeah, but millions of kids are buying these things with their own money. They must have some value. And she wanted to know what it was. So she was very much about um, looking past the conventional wisdom and finding her own wisdom. And she was very interested, I think, in tapping into what children were were thinking or actually thinking and the realities of children's internal and external lives. Yeah. As opposed to a fantasized and sanitized version. Yeah. I love what she wrote about Maurice Sendak to that New Yorker journalist. She says, Most books are written from the outside in, but wild things, where the wild things are, comes from the inside out, if you know what I mean. And I think Maurice's book is the first picture book to recognize the fact that children have powerful emotions, anger and love and hate, and only after all that passion, the wanting to be, quote, where someone loved him best of all. It's that negative emotion, right? It's the recognition that they have all these powerful Mm -hmm. negative emotions that then contribute to their wanting so powerfully to have a positive, safe, and loving place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say there were no books before his books, and the the ones that I would think of are Margaret Weiss Brown's, which she also published. But um, in terms of emotional intensity, like The Runaway Bunny, it's really a you know passionate love story but the anger part of it never came out in the earlier books sendak you know made that his one of his contributions what was Um, your catchphrase good books for bad children yeah because the history of children's books had been all about addressing the moral education of children and she pivoted to the psychology of childhood and the emotional realities of childhood and that's really what you know she's thinking of bad but real Imperfect, and, but and real. that's still Human. where we are today. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She and Sendak and the people around her gave everyone else license to be much more real with children, and it's international. When this book, Dear Genius, was published in Japan, maybe twelve years ago, I went there and I was in a bookstore in Tokyo and to give a talk, and I said, "Do you happen to have any books in your inventory on your shelves?" that are the Japanese editions of books that were published by Ursula Nordstrom, they came back with armloads. Wow. You know, at least 35 books that they just happened to have on that particular day. (laughs) And then now in China, the same thing. So, and she would have been stunned, you know, because she didn't even like getting on an airplane. (laughs) 
<laughs> but the reach of the books that she published has been recognized now to the ends of the earth. Julie, you know what this is making me think of? This idea of good books for bad children? No. It's making me think of Louisa May Alcott. Oh. Because she was the groundbreaking author who started writing children's books for real children. And right. I think you can draw a line directly from Louisa May Alcott 60 years later to Ursula. And then today, you have these books all over the world that are good books for bad children. You know what else I'm thinking? Another connection between Louisa May Alcott and Ursula Nordstrom. They both had difficult childhoods, which may have informed this interest that they had in making books real for kids. Louisa was poor and her father was unreliable. And Ursula's father and her mother, I think, really neglected her. He was a famous stage actor. She wasn't so famous, but she was drop-dead beautiful and just an impossible role model for her. And so they were a little bit, I think, wrapped up in themselves. And then they got divorced when she was about seven. And she was shipped off to a boarding school. So she saw this kind of glamorous side of life, but she also felt abandoned. And she had very intense emotional memories that she brought to her work. Right. She also very badly wanted to go to college and couldn't because financially she couldn't swing it. And I can't help but compare this to some other famous editors, male editors, like Maxwell Perkins, who was a legendary editor. He edited people like F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway. And, you know, he went to St. Paul's and Harvard. And then you have Bennett Cerf, who founded Random House and brought in Faulkner and Dr. Seuss. And his mother was a tobacco heiress. He went to Columbia. So the contrast between these iconic male editors and Ursula is really striking. Anyway, next we talk to Leonard about Ursula's judgment and how sometimes even Ursula Nordstrom made mistakes. And <clears throat> speaking of mistakes, if you Stop. listen very closely, <laughs> it happens right in the beginning. You, you get to hear Julie <laughs> talk about Crotchet Johnson. <laughs> You Here belong we, in middle school. It's a good thing you write middle grade. Why do you, you think I write middle, school, middle yeah, grade exactly. books? Okay, let's get very serious. Here we go. Another incredible thing that the letters reveal is, are sometimes close calls with judgment, right? That like, The letter where she tells Crotchet Johnson that she doesn't like Harold and the Pearl. Right, <laughs> right. Crockett Johnson. Yeah. yeah. Well, every editor has stories like that. And I mean, it is a really strange book. You know, it's a kind of conceptual artwork really, because this boy is making up the book as he goes along. It's like the first meta book, probably. Self-conscious way of storytelling that has become much more common in these days in books like The Stinky Cheese Man and others. So it, it was a lot to get a hold of, but she figured it out after a few days and then wrote him a second letter right. and accepted it. Yeah, Right. That's so interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought it hadn't occurred to me that it would be this new style. Yeah, no, I think you could say that. <laughs> yes, she says in this letter, in this first letter, she says, it doesn't seem to be a good children's book to me, but I'm often wrong. And this post-children's book week Monday finds me dead in the head. Mm -hmm. Let me keep the dummy a few days, will you? Yeah. She has such a great voice. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that was a great part of her gift. I mean, she made a lot of bad news acceptable. 
She got a lot of people to go back and try again. She liked to say, not good enough for you, implying that you are capable of such great heights of achievement that even as good as this is, you could still be a little bit better. So she was flattering at the same time she was pushing, you know, for more. She generally got what she wanted from people. I noticed that her style would change too, depending on yeah. both whom she was yes. addressing sure. and what stage of the That's right. process or what she was trying to get. That's right. Well, like E.B. White was already a famous writer and a mainstay of the Harper adult list, you know, as an essayist, when he had presented his first children's book manuscript, Stuart Little. And she felt really deferential toward him and I think was nervous around him. It took a while before they could start joking with each other. I noticed, um, I have a note here, that her letters to him seem very professional. Yeah. Much more so yeah. than any of the yeah. other letters. And she often wrote to his wife, not, That's right. not to him. Well, yeah, I mean, Catherine... Was that their preference, or was she nervous? Catherine was several things. She was the fiction editor of The New Yorker. She also was, for a while, their children's book reviewer. She wrote twice a year about children's books for the magazine. And she was her husband's business manager. So he was kind of a hothouse flower. I mean, he had lots of hypochondriacal fears. She was always sheltering him from all the bad things in the world. So it was natural for her to take the lead in corresponding with any publisher. And But I think Ursula and she um, really hit it off. They had great respect for each other. And Catherine White was formidable. She was an extraordinary person. And she was also a pretty, you know, crackerjack agent for her husband. So there was never really any arguing that I came across. Mm -hmm. This does make me wonder more generally what it's like to edit iconic authors. Does the editing process change as an author becomes more famous or is it harder to be critical? You know, how do you tell E.B. White, Charlotte's not developed enough as a character. You know, yeah. change that plot line. Yeah. I mean, in that case, I think there were one or two instances where she did speak up. But I think sometimes, probably more often than not, with what you call iconic writers, they don't get edited. Mm-hmm. And there's either the fear of intruding on, you know, the person of vision's way of doing things. Or there's the fear on a practical level of them going to some other publisher where they'll be better treated. So, I I mean, I I think you can see that in the Harry Potter books, for example. Mm -hmm. They seem to, by volume five, there's a clear need for editing. That never happened. There's an incredibly (laughs) critical letter that Nordstrom wrote to Russell, is it? Sorry, Russell Hoban, the author of Bedtime. (laughs) Just, you know, really like, this, I mean, she doesn't say the words, this is terrible, but uh-huh. <laughs> this is yeah. just not working at mm-hmm. all. Yeah. And it was borderline mean, mm-hmm. I thought. And then a few letters later, she's thanking him for dedicating the book to her. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah. she obviously knew when. Yeah. I mean, that was, I think, very early in his career. So mm-hmm. she might have yeah. changed as he became right. more famous. Yeah. But there were times and people whom she knew she could push. That's right. And they didn't mind. He didn't seem to mind. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, she was, she really discovered him. I mean, he came in as an illustrator. He didn't even think of himself as a writer at the beginning. He had a book in his portfolio, a book of illustrations having to do with like heavy machinery, like bulldozers, things like that, wanting to sell it as a picture book. And somehow it evolved rather quickly that he was also capable of writing other kinds of stories. 
And so, I mean, she had like a Pygmalion aspect to her personality and her career. She discovered people. She, I think she relished the act of discovery and shaping something unformed into something, you know, finished and wonderful. And he, you know, he's as good an example as any of, of an artist and writer with whom she was able to do that. Yeah. She did have a lot of confidence and she didn't, you know, beat around the bush. Eve, I thought it might be interesting to read from some of the letters we've been discussing. Yes. What do you think? Yes, absolutely. Okay. First, there's the really mean letter to Russell Hoban. Here's what I meant when I said it was mean. She's referring to a book that was then called Who's Afraid? I do think it is better, but I'm afraid it is going to need a lot more work, Russ. You simply didn't take any time to set the stage, get any characters, think about the situation. All this sounds very ponderous and over-serious, and I don't mean it that way. But you should make up a 32-page dummy and rough out how the text will fall. Do this without pictures, just imagining them, just figuring out how to divide the text. Then you will see that this simply starts bang and goes on with no pacing. It just goes on and on. Ouch. (laughs) Ouch. It just goes on and on. (laughs) Oh, can you imagine Uh, getting a letter like that? No, it's just awful. You got to appreciate her honesty. Leonard talked to us as well about his process, how he culled something like 100,000 letters down to 300 letters. And he, what he tried to do was have different categories of letters represented in the book. One of those categories of letters is a close reading letter where she goes into detail, incredible detail, about what an author should change in the manuscript. And the example that Leonard included was a letter to the author Sid Hoff about his book, Danny and the Dinosaur. And in this letter, it's incredible. She's basically writing the book for him because it's an early reader, so there aren't all that many words. Julie, could you read a little bit from the Danny and the Dinosaur letter, just a sentence or two to give people a sense? I won't read much because it's incredibly dense and it goes on forever. And it tells him just in incredible detail exactly what she wants him to do. Let's see. First page of text and pictures. I think you should just say, one day Danny went to the museum. He didn't actually want to, quote, see how the world looked a long, long time ago, end quote, as you put it. Do you think? Very unchildlike. He might have wanted to go see the dead mummies or other specific things in a museum, but I wouldn't mention that here because you mention it on the following pages. So just have a simple statement for this first page. One day, Danny went to the museum. Yeah, I mean, so she's writing sentences upon sentences to guide him for just one sentence. It's really remarkable. Yeah. So here's how Leonard describes the effect of these letters. It's almost like watching a photograph emerge in the chemical tray, you know, from a blank piece of paper to the finished image. You start with sort of chaos and uh, line by line, she shows him what the best way to put the image across would be. And essentially, as you say, rewrote the book for him. So Sid Hoff was still alive. And my editor and I, and I guess maybe one or two other people at Harper, were you know genuinely concerned about his feelings, whether that would be devastating for him to have in print. And had he reacted that way, then it wouldn't have been in the book. But I called him. He was living in Florida. And he said to me, Anything that brings glory to Ursula's reputation is fine with me. Wow. How did you find the letters? Oh, well, most of them were at Harper because she 
carpent everything, partly with the idea that it was important to keep a record, but um, more immediately in order to be able to circulate the carbons to all of her staff. And she used them as a teaching tool, as well as a kind of bulletin board so that everyone else would know what she was doing, which books were at what stage. But I, I do think she was trying to teach them, the younger people, how to deal with difficult authors and illustrators, or just how to cope with different situations that might arise. Yeah. Right. Speaking of which, I don't think we talked about the category of letters where she's just purely encouraging yeah. and supportive yeah. of yeah. authors. Yeah. There's the Dutch author who was not oh, as Oh, Minor to Jong. Yeah. If I, I'm, pronounced, I'm not even sure if that's the right way to pronounce right. it. I've already seen his name in print. She could not be more supportive yeah. and encouraging and over sort of years years oh, yeah. now he was a janitor in a church in michigan he was just sitting there uh, with a typewriter manual typewriter at night hammering out novel after novel and you know for a number of years nothing was quite right but they also engaged in a very extensive correspondence it was one of the two longest correspondences I mean, it filled an entire um, file cabinet drawer. So there must have been must have been thousands of letters, and they were single spaced, and often they were three and four pages long. So imagine that. Yeah. World War II came and went, and eventually he wrote a book that she felt she could publish. And then the most amazing thing happened. I mean, there were several books followed, and then he won every prize in sight. You know, he won the Newbery Medal. He won the Hans Christian Andersen Medal, which is an international prize. I think he won the National Book Award. And um, just, you know, rags to riches. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Of course, it, it affected him in a way that damaged their relationship. He became a little bit too big for himself. Mm. And they ended up having a falling out, which happened more than once with Ursula. Once the person achieved the fame that they were both aiming for. She was much better with newly discovered mega talents. So did he resent her editorial input? I think so. As I recall, I think there came along a manuscript that she felt needed to be improved, and he thought it didn't. Getting back to that question of what's it like to edit iconic Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's such a labor-intensive and, in a way, sort of heart-intensive process. You know, you put so much of yourself into those things over such a long period of time that I think some people just got burned out. And I think Ursula got burned out with some people too. Louise Fitzhugh became really difficult to edit after The Long Secret. First Harriet the Spy, then The Long Secret. She ended up going to um, Delacorte uh, as an alternate publisher. Once again, just to be clear, there. <laughs> Things are different nowadays. Editors do not spend years writing thousands of letters to primacing writers until finally that writer has written a publishable book. I mean, I know a lot of writers. Have you ever heard anything like that? I haven't. And in fairness <laughs> to editors, they may want to do that, but they, they can't. They just have way no. too much on their plates. But again, it's a wonderful book dream to imagine a world yeah. like that. <laughs> yes. But there's also yes. the heartbreak there, right? Yeah. That he leaves her after all those years. Yeah, I feel for her. And he wasn't the only author who did that. There were a number of, of famous authors whom Ursula built up. And then when they got super famous, they left. And that was very hard for her. She supported her authors like nobody's business. And she supported her books with the same devotion 
that she supported her authors. Here's what Leonard has to say about some controversial books that she really went to the mat for. A very important category were the letters that related to books that either she anticipated being controversial or became controversial. And then how she made a big effort to write to the people who could shape opinion about those books and make a ensure a better reception for them. You know, Harriet the Spy was one of those books because it's a book about an angry 11-year-old girl who sneaks around and, you know, eavesdrops on her neighbors and lies and, you know, does all kinds of things that break the ordinary rules. That was bound to catch flack from some critics. In the Night Kitchen, The Naked Boy, the fact that it was illustrated in a style related to cartoon comic strips, which were, you know, verboten with the librarians. There was also the book where she consulted psychiatrists because there was a gay... Oh, yeah. I'll Get There, It Had Better Be Worth the Trip by John Donovan. Yeah, it was the first middle grade novel that made, albeit a veiled reference, a reference to homosexuality. She knew it would be a lightning rod. And so her method was to say, okay, but it's a worthwhile book. And so we have to, you know, enlist psychologists and other people who are indisputably experts on the subject who will say that this is beneficial, not harmful. She was very politic in that way. You know, she preempted a lot of the harshest criticisms that the books she published were likely to receive. So it's not enough to publish great books. You have to bring them out into the world in the right way. And she knew how to do that. I don't think we could end this any better. I wholeheartedly agree. So I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason, or any other reason, at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. Many thanks to our associate producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveyohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to book dreams with Julie.